This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the living room. Uh, I'm here with uh, Hillary Hoynes, who's a professor in the Goldman School of Public Policy, and Rucker Johnson, who is also a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Both of them have studied poverty policy, the impact of government programs on poverty, and on other aspects of people's lives. Uh, so today we're going to discuss, can we get rid of poverty, and, and uh, what can we do better to make sure that people who are poor have a better chance at succeeding in American society? Let me start with a biblical quotation. In Matthew, it says, the poor ye shall always have with you. And then in Deuteronomy, it says that again, but it also says, so make sure you provide them with alms and caregiving and and make sure that they'll be okay. Is poverty policy really just a matter, as those quotations suggest, of dealing with a problem that's always going to be here and also trying to do sort of the right thing by giving alms? Or is there more to what poverty policy could be? Professor Hoynes. Well, you know, as you know, we've been measuring poverty since the early 60s in the United States. And some of the emphasis is on exactly as your first kind of quote and and motivation, the second quote suggests that uh, there will always be incidents that create uh, situations when when folks are poor and that our job as a society is to try to, to help those families in need. But I think that especially in the last decade, we've learned a lot more about the importance of thinking about anti-poverty policy and the social safety net more broadly and the kinds of poverty policies that that Rucker studies as more than just helping out families today or helping out individuals in need today, but more about um, situations that are providing opportunities for individuals to achieve their abilities and opportunities and and more generally thinking about investments in the future for both the individuals and and as as hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about for government and society as a whole. So the Great Society, the Lyndon Johnson programs, a whole bunch of programs, uh, were intended to eradicate poverty and many people point out they didn't. Is that right? A really important, though, kind of in the weeds comment about this is that when we first started measuring poverty at that time, on the cusp of the beginning of the Great Society period, in the beginning of the 1960s, the primary ways that we tried to affect poverty for families and for individuals was by providing cash assistance through things like Social Security um, uh, and welfare through uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children program. Fast forward 50 years, and the social safety net looks very, very different, critically in two ways. One, we provide a lot of assistance through in-kind transfers rather than cash. Secondly, we provide a lot of assistance through the tax code. Now, why is that important? It's important because our official poverty measure circa early 1960s was a poverty measure that made sense at the time. Technically, official poverty depends only on cash money income. So by definition, does not include the value of things like food stamps, housing subsidies, other food and nutrition programs, and the earned income tax credit. 
And it turns out for families with children, those are by far the most important anti-poverty programs when thinking about individual incomes. So on the one hand, if you look at our official poverty measure, you'll find, particularly for children, uh, poverty rates have not gone down very much since, say, the early 1970s. They tend to go up in recessions, down in expansions, but not really looking for much kind of long-term improvement. However, if you use a more modern, up-to-date measure, such as the supplemental poverty measure that has been released by Census for the last six years, you see much more evidence of improvement. Uh, We have a ways to go. Poverty is not zero. But you see more relationship between expenditures and spending on these programs and gains in terms of reductions in poverty. So... Let me just take, so, so there are, is some evidence that actually we have been able to reduce poverty to some extent. There is some evidence of that, for sure. Parents with children. How about the elderly? Let's just deal with that. Professor Johnson, what's the case with the elderly? So I think that the case of the reductions in poverty among the elderly, particularly in the first 10 to 15 years following the war on poverty, is a great success. And it's a policy-induced success in the incidence of poverty among the elderly. It, it's, it's not something that happened automatically that would have happened. It's something that is an artifact of a policy with the war on poverty that definitely increased the well-being of the elderly. The key dimensions, though, are the ways in which our investments at older ages relative to our investments in kids have not kept up. And so there's a significant disinvestment in children relative to what we're expending in the older years. And what we're trying to do is, from a research standpoint, is try to produce research about how investments in children have long-term payoffs in not just well-being, but overall life chances. And that requires the kind of data and longitudinal systems of tracking... Longitudinal, so that's over time. Over time, having the ability to look at the kind of safety net, the type of investments that we've made in children, but then following those same children into their middle school years, their high school years, their adult years, and then looking at how those earlier investments have shaped those so subsequent tell me outcomes. one program, even maybe a great society program, that you think has actually had positive impacts for poor people as you track them over 20, 30, 40 years? Well, so I think that one of the key pieces of the war on poverty rolled out Head Start. So Head Start is the largest federal investment in early child education. It was um, one of the key dimensions that actually the increase in funding actually varied across areas. And so what's important about kind of thinking about how this conversation is very similar is that there's a conventional wisdom that the war on poverty was a failure. There's also a conventional wisdom that Head Start has been a colossal failure. I want to return to a quote that you, you know, you began with a quote, I think, a helpful quote here from Irvin Aristotle said, um, we cannot know the truth without knowing its cause. And so I think that the, the research community is using better 
um, methods to be able to disentangle causal effects of impacts of these early investments on children's long-run outcomes beyond short-run test scores that often miss the actual long-term impacts of some of these interventions. A lot of the early analyses said initially some gains, but within a few years they're dissipated. Therefore, Head Start really has no impact because by the third grade, uh, most children just don't show any differential effects between those who got Head Start and those who didn't. That's right. So what do you find? That's right. So there, there is this kind of concern that the, long, the impacts fade out relatively early when you just focus on test scores, okay? But one of the things about the mounting evidence, both in the neuroscience literature and across areas, is that the ways in which poverty affects school readiness cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which expansion of early child education programs is that basically... This is a period, zero to six, of tremendous growth in terms of brain development, in terms of emotional capacities, and a four-year-old's brain is using more energy than at any other time in their lives, and that kind of development can't be delayed. And when we invest in those early years, the key thing is that the the long-term impacts have to be coupled with quality investments in the K through 12 years as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough if we just kind of think of early investments and kind of think of one versus the other, but we want to think about how we couple our investments. And so one of the things about Head Start is that it, it enabled continuity of pediatric care for young children. And so it was actually a health intervention in addition to the kind of cognitive uh, sets of learning environments that it provided for poor kids that generally gets o- overlooked. So, so what do you find 20 or 30 we, years we later? We try to look at not only educational outcomes in terms of grade repetition, the likelihood of grade repetition, high school graduation rates, years of completed education, but we also look at things like criminal involvement mm-hmm. and adult earnings. And what we find is Number one, the amount of spending in these programs affects the quality of provision of early child education programs. So it's not as if we can say early child education is the same, but additional spending affects the quality of that provision. Number two, we find that when that spending occurs, that the long-run impacts are significantly increased when in the K-12 through years they attend more high-quality schools as reflected in better resource schools in their K-12 through years. Mm. So we do see that kind of potential fade-out when they attend schools that are below-average school spending, which just goes to show that there's these synergistic, what I call developmental multiplier effects, in our spending in the early years that creates more efficacious spending opportunities to take advantage of children's uh, learning outcomes in the K through 12 years. And your your work is complementary to the work of Dave Deming, who is also part of the GSPP family. That's um, right. Who finds that by using a different kind of comparison, essentially comparing two children in the same family, one that attends Head Start and the other that doesn't, but again, looking at these long-term outcomes like you just mentioned, adult earnings, incarceration, teen fertility for girls, 
and all pointing towards the finding that even though the short-term test scores seem to decrease, in the long run, we find these quantitatively important effects on uh, young to middle adulthood outcomes. And, and I think the point that we were saying that is also reflective in the war on poverty programs is that food stamps is a nutrition program right, that your work speaks to in terms of its impacts in exposing kids at younger ages. So again, it's not just Head Start, but it's the investments early. So maybe you could share about how the impacts of food stamp, but in concert also with the, the, the kind of parallel set of findings about the early education investments as well but in these early years in particular. Yeah. I mean, it may be less surprising to think about Head Start as an early childhood education program as an investment. Like, we're used to that kind of conversation. If we weren't aware of it before, Jim Heckman has made this something that, uh, after his Nobel Prize, he's taken on as something that he spends a lot of time talking about. It's perhaps a little bit more surprising that we could think about welfare programs as, as also having a, a, a context of, of this investment. We even have a name for that. We say being on the dole. So we like, have it being on. So you're, there's no, there's sort of a presumption that, well, that's maybe the right thing to do, like my biblical quotation, because absolutely. we should be kind to the poor. Right. But it's certainly not an investment. It's just something we do out of kindness. But, right. But quite importantly, very much following up on what Rucker just said, uh, so work that I've been doing with uh, my co-authors, Doug Almond and Diane Schonsenbach, again, go back to the beginning of the Great Society period and again, take advantage of the fact that in the beginnings, just like with the Head Start program in the beginnings, uh, not everyone in the United States had access to Head Start or food stamps when the program was first introduced. And so we take advantage of this 15-year period between the early 60s and the mid-70s when county-by-county food stamp programs were launched in the United States. So by today's context, food stamps is incredibly important. Uh, As I'm sure you know, at the height of the Great Recession, about one in seven people were participating in food stamps. We can talk maybe later about its central importance as a sort of automatic stabilizer, both for the economy and for families. But back, rolling back to the early 1960s and 70s, we had this time period over which some people had access to, to food stamps and some people didn't. So we take advantage of that sort of temporal variation across uh, counties to ask the question, how does access to food stamps and when does access to food stamps change your outcomes in sort of middle adulthood? So, so this the, is like 30, 40 years later. 30 to 40 at. years later. So now the, the oldest um, cohorts that were initially treated to food stamps in the early part of the 60s would now be about my age in their mid-50s. So we observe outcomes on a range of people from, say, their 30s through their 50s, depending on these different cohorts. And we take advantage of uh, this variation in food stamps to um, uh, basically trace out how access to food stamps affects your, first of all, we looked at um, health outcomes, metabolic health, um, heart disease, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, the risk of those conditions, which we call metabolic syndrome, and how food stamps affects that in adulthood. And what we find is the rather striking finding that particularly providing uh, access to better nutrition before the ages of, say, four, three, four, in utero through ages three or four, 
lead to dramatic reductions in the incidence of metabolic syndrome in adulthood. And where this sort of comes from, again, gets back to these very interdisciplinary studies between economics, public policy, developmental psychology, and others in order to try to understand what would be the the pathway, what is a physiological pathway through which better nutrition in early life leads to reductions in metabolic syndrome in adulthood. And this is a rather old theory that has been established through rigorous uh, findings with randomized control trials with rats in the lab, as well as some early sort of public health epidemiology studies studying um, uh, the famine in uh, the Netherlands at the end of World War II. So this literature basically argues that when the metabolic system is being developed in utero and postnatally in early night life, if you have inadequate nutrition, the metabolic syndrome uh, system through evolutionary pressures becomes very efficient, is hardwired to be efficient in the processing of that limited amount of nutrition. Now, it turns out that that metabolic system is rather plastic. It doesn't adjust once it's set. And so if you survive that nutritional deprivation and then enter life with normal access to food or nutrition, the metabolic system becomes overloaded. And the outcome of that are these risks of metabolic syndrome. So what we do is provide really the first evidence about whether or not a policy-driven, maybe more moderate intervention that isn't a famine could actually lead to these same reductions. And the answer is unequivocally yes. And in particular, in those early years of childhood. So food stamps does not just immediately help people who are hungry get food. Right. Which is its first impact. Of course. But 30, 40, 50 years later, it's still helping young people who were lucky enough to get food stamps in those periods so that they're less likely to become ill with metabolic syndrome. Yes. And so that means that the costs of paying for health care for those people, the likelihood they'll have a job, the likelihood they'll have uh, good lives has increased substantially. So Without that investment leads to something a long time. Significant health returns. And because of the connection between health and education, those returns also yield significant changes in economic status in adulthood as well. But it's really this parallel with what Hillary was referring to with the fetal origins hypothesis that posited when nutritional deficits in the womb are limited, that the body's metabolism would be fundamentally altered in ways that show up and manifest much later in life. And again, without access to data that's Mm -hmm. following people over time, we won't really be able to quantify the societal benefits and costs of these investments because the investments are born up front. Right. But the stream of benefits accrue far into the future. Right. And so, but the actual benefit cost analysis more than pays for the initial investments. So it's not just an equity consideration, but it's an efficient use of how we maximize the potential of all children, whether they're born into more disadvantaged environments or not, that we have effective interventions that can indeed change trajectories in ways that connect education and health. And especially children who, of course, don't choose the families into which they're born. So just in terms of fairness and a chance for them to have equal opportunity with other people, this is a a tremendous achievement. I want to follow up on one thing that you said, and I think to do this work we need three things. 
We need the data that can be challenging because we need to know, in, in the case of, of my work and yours, we need to know what counties people were born in. That's not easy to find. So one, you need data. Number two, of course, you need a rigorous research design and statistical methodology. But number three, you need time. Mm-hmm. And so in this kind of impatient world and, and in a desire to have evidence-based policy, which I'm sure all three of us are greatly in favor of, the more we learn, the more we realize that many of these policies that are costly in the short run can yield dramatic benefits in the long run, and we need the time in order to be able to do that evaluation. And that's really a challenge in the sort of quick-changing world of show me what's important now, show me what's important today. Because uh, Head Start, we could have said, well, since the short-term gains dissipate quickly, exactly. obviously a bad idea, let's go on, try something else. But it turns out after we wait 20, 30 years, we find out that the short-term gains may have dissipated uh, uh, quickly, but there's other long-term sort of hidden advantages exactly. uh, that you just don't see until a lot later. And so that's what your research has shown. That's right. And, and I think that the important piece of all of this is that the long-term viability and success of a program is very dependent on the documented success. Mm-hmm. A program could be successful, but without its documentation of its success. And the costs are always much easier. Right. To, you know, <laughs> but the benefits are often sometimes elude statistical observation in the short run. And, and it's just a point that undocumented successful programs are much more subject to the budget cut. Mm-hmm. And if the research community can't kind of corral both good data armed with exceptional research designs to tease out causal causality, then I think we're, we're going to be in a situation where we actually underinvest in children's long-term, uh, you know, opportunity. Mm-hmm. So another area you've worked in, uh, Professor Johnson, is the uh, public uh, financing for education, K through 12, and how changes in that public financing had a big impact on students. Can you say something about that research? Yeah, so I, I think, I'm glad you asked. I, I think that schools in particular raise a magnifying glass of many social problems that we face in the U.S. And if you look at the achievement gap, as the first example, you can see that the achievement gap between rich and poor kids is large, and it's about twice the, um, the, the, the amount of the gap between black and white students, mm. and it's growing. Mm. And that reality that the achievement gap by a class has actually been growing over the past two decades is also a reflection of increasing inequality. And the way in which that increasing inequality has manifested is in increasing economic segregation Mm. that has created contexts in which kids are going to school in very separate and sometimes very unequal quality school systems. And one of the historical ways in which we funded local schools has been through the local property tax base. And because wealthy communities have much larger tax base, but also generally less concentrated need, it's led to significant differences in per-pupil spending disparities by both race and economic status. And what school finance reforms 
that first began in the early 70s but really accelerated into the 80s and 90s were motivated really out of a movement to ensure that um, wealth wasn't a determinant of Mm -hmm. the amount of spending a district had access to. Again, the idea that children don't choose their parents, everybody deserves an equal chance. That's right. And I think what's similar about these literatures, the war on poverty was a failure. I just want to say a few, like three myths that I think is important about this conversation. The war on poverty was a failure. Hmm. Head Start was a failure. And that school spending doesn't matter. I think that's a conventional wisdom that kind of has its own mythology. But if you go back and revisit each one of those literatures, you kind of, an emerging, uh, an emerging set of research across uh, scholars is becoming to come to very different conclusions about each of those pieces. And so with school spending, it's a similar piece where in beginning with probably the Coleman Report 50 years ago, put a lot of skepticism about the ways in which school resources indeed matter. Eric Hanushik, 20 years later, kind of echoed those conclusions. And so what we did, again, joint with Carabo Jackson, my colleague, what we try to do is leverage the fact that since 1970, 28 states have ruled that systems that rely solely on locally financed systems declared unconstitutional. And with their overturn, usually kind of appealing to some aspect of the constitutional equal protection clause of that state constitution, there then was rolled out a set of court-ordered school finance reforms. And school finance reforms vary in their character, but the idea of most of them were aimed to try to provide funding to equalize the kind of differential burden that districts face in their need and the capacity to provide resources for that need, to try to narrow spending gaps. By so instead of being locally financed, school districts are also state-financed, and the state tries to make sure that there's more equality across school that's right. districts. That's right. So in in the, terms of that's the true inputs. in California. Though, that's right? true. Yeah. And California was one of the very first states, actually, to implement school, the very first to implement school finance reform in 1971. And really, um, that has played a central role. I would say it's probably the largest um, kind of overhaul, restructuring of the system of funding for local public schools. I would say um, outside of school desegregation is probably the largest single large-scale change in the system of providing quality schooling. The question, though, is like, even though there had been research, Dave Card, for example, had produced early studies that showed how it equalized spending gaps with the school finance reforms. Legislative reforms have also played a role in that. But very limited evidence had been able to document what impacts on kids that were affected. And so what we were able to do is kind of compile nationally representative data of cohorts born in 1955 through, really 1950 through 1985 that have been followed through 2013. And the key about that is that we were able to identify the communities in which they grew up and the school funding levels and the timing of the court-ordered school finance reforms, timing of legislative reforms, and compare kids 
that actually grew up in the same districts, but were differentially exposed to these policy-induced changes in school spending so that we could isolate the impacts of spending independent of family background, neighborhood background, and other coincident policies that we know are important. So there were safety net policy changes that happened in those periods. We try to account for all of those things so we can isolate the independent effect of school spending. We find a significant improvement, particularly among poor kids, in their subsequent earnings, educational attainment, even their adult health significant improvements that led to a dramatic narrowing of um, socioeconomic status in adults. So adult. once again, investment in kids is not only the right thing to do and that it's the charitable thing to do, it's also a good thing to do because it makes the society as a whole better off because those young people have more chances to get good jobs, they're less inclined to engage in criminal activity, they cost us less in terms of health care, mm-hmm. and on and on and on. Are there and then presumably their children do better as well. Right. So society is better off as a whole. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the things that you were asking in terms of, I think about the early period of the war on poverty period, for example, I think there was a lot of optimism yeah. about what policy could do and the promise of policy interventions as being a tool that could change lives. And I think the difference today is not that the problems are like less important. I think it, arguably the importance of quality education has never been more important. Um, we can see that the depth of extreme poverty has increased. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if we're talking about a situation where the problems are like less dire. But I think our optimism about what policy can do, there's been a, I think there's just been a, um, the persistence of educational inequalities has fueled a perception that the major equal education opportunities we've pursued to this point have been fruitless, have been inconsequential weapons for achievement gaps and tackling the intergenerational transmission of poverty. And I think that's where the, we're trying to... So I want to push you just a little bit on yes. this because I, I hear you saying that more money in Head Start would help, more money in K-12 through education would help. Is that the end of the story? Is it just more money that matters or does it manage? And I think it doesn't matter. I think you said with Head Start, quality Head Start. So tell me about that. What's the other necessary condition here in addition, or at least one other necessary condition in addition to money? Well, economists often talk about production function. The idea of production function is like, how do inputs, school resource inputs, how, like in other words, descriptive evidence about the amount of achievement gaps and the amount of school resource, that that doesn't give you enough um, clarity on how best to improve education systems. For that, for policy prescriptions, we actually need the precise relationships between school spending, school resource inputs, and students' short and long run outcomes to be able to trace out the causal chain that links measures of school quality and earlier life access to measures of adult success. Without that, we're kind of just talking of descriptively, that's helpful, but doesn't give us the kind of ability to know exactly how to improve. So I think one of the ways in which thinking about school spending, but also how the money's spent has demonstrated that, for example, with early child education, that programs that enlist teachers with child development training create better 
um, staff that can meet emotional and uh, intellectually stimulating environments as opposed to kind of daycare, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that requires actually more money, right? right. So usually quality, <laughs> the reason we talk about money is because it's usually not a sufficient condition, but it often is a necessary condition for improving quality. And K through 12? And K through 12 in the same way. In other words, one of the reasons why we found such significant impacts of school spending is because we found that the court-ordered school finance reforms led to significant increases in teacher salaries, hmm. longer school years, um, smaller class sizes. So a lot of that spending hmm. made its way to the classroom in the form of improved instructional time and instructional quality. And we believe that that was the central the major reason why we saw these long-term... So, yes, does how the money spent matter? Certainly. And even our investments in the safety net, similarly, we, we have to be strategic about targeting the resources where the need is most acute. So we've talked a lot about investments in children and how that can be very helpful in the long run. Let's move towards another big piece of the safety net, which is the earned income tax credit and similar kinds of programs, which operate in a somewhat different way. How would you say they operate? Are they investments or are they incentives or what are they exactly? Well, just stepping back a little bit, one of the biggest changes in the social safety net, in particularly for single mothers or for children, um, in the last 20 years with welfare reform that took place in 1996, uh, and huge growth in the earned income tax credit is essentially a movement fr- away from what we term out-of-work assistance, that is uh, concentrating aid for families and children to folks who are out, out of the labor market and moving towards an in-work safety net. And the EITC is at the center of that, of that movement. And so the earned income tax credit is, is tax-based earnings subsidy for families with children in the United States it's two things. It's an incentive. We can talk about that. New work also shows it's an investment. So it kind of gets back to the same theme that we've been talking about today. But let's talk about the investment because it's quite distinct um, from our usual conversations about potential negative effects of uh, assistance and redistribution for low-income families. So uh, a typical welfare program, this would be true of, uh, of cash welfare, uh, also true of, of the basic food stamp program, is it, it's a safety net. The idea is that if you have no income, we're going to provide a floor that we don't want your income to not fall below. But unless we give that income to everybody, it needs to be phased out at some rate. As I, as I always say to my students, if it's, if it's a means-tested program, you have to phase it out or everybody gets it. Um, so the question is... So it's is, not means-tested. I mean, and then it's not means-tested, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in contrast, the Earned Income Tax Credit is a program where you get no assistance if you have no earnings. Um, it operates as, a, as an earnings subsidy sort of on the margin uh, with increases in labor effort. And so what that means, practically speaking, is if I'm a single mother or a married uh, individual with, with, say, two children... Um, and my earnings are, say, at the minimum wage, um, then even at full-time work, for every hour that I work, uh, I get essentially a 40% subsidy to my wage uh, through this earned income tax credit. So it operates as a very basic earnings subsidy. 
in, until you earn enough such that that payment is phased out. These are not small um, benefits that households receive. So if I say work full time at the minimum wage, I would get an earned income tax credit of about $5,000 per year if I have two children. That could be, you know, almost 40% of my, of my gross earnings could be represented by this. So this is a large, important mm-hmm. payment uh, that ultimately is, is phased out. Uh, if you earn enough, the, 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 the benefit is, 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 is clawed away. So certainly in the short run, it provides enormous benefits to families while increasing the incentives to enter the labor market for the parent. And what we saw in the 1990s when welfare was made more restrictive at the same time that the earned income tax credit was made more generous, the sum total of those two policies were that the employment rate of single moms increased by eight, nine percentage points uh, between the early 90s and the late 1990s. Unprecedented increases in employment mm-hmm. uh, for, that are even larger if you look at lower education levels. So the incentive part of the EITC is to increase income, reduce poverty while encouraging work. And what you see then is that the reductions in poverty that occur from the EITC occur not just because of the handout, to get back to your first mm-hmm. comment, but because of the increase in earnings that that structure of that benefit induces. And it turns out that if we ignore the, if we only look at the handout, we would miss about half of the anti-poverty effectiveness of the EITC. So I looked at that in some recent work. So that's the incentive piece. Um, And for children in the United States, it is full stop the largest anti-poverty program in the United States. About over 5 million children move from poverty each and, year. And an anti-poverty wor- a program that gets people to work so that they also have the satisfaction of knowing that they actually have a place in society and that they're not uh, marginalized in some fundamental way. Indeed. And in fact, that is really at the core of why this program might be possibly uh, the policy for the poor that's had the most bipartisan support over the years. So if we think about it, the EITC has been expanded under Republican presidents, including Reagan, uh, also expanded under Bill Clinton. That was the largest expansion in 1993. And then subsequent expansions by, by George W. Bush. So it's a program that's had a lot of bipartisan support. That's the kind of incentive part. But again, sort of um, continuing the conversation about thinking about investments rather than just short-term transfers, um, some important work that I and others have done show the EITC has those features as well. So we don't yet have evidence on the EITC that's 40 years later. That will, we'll have to wait a little bit more time for that. But there's some kind of growing evidence that's pointing towards the same sort of investments. So in work that uh, I'm currently doing using uh, data on K through 12 education outcomes for the entire state of Florida, matched with birth records and, and, and tax records, uh, and this is work in progress, we're uh, uh, looking at how providing more assistance through the earned income tax credit leads to changes in kids' trajectories through school. Um, and we're able so to... So their parents are getting the EITC. They're in a family where the parents 
exactly. get EITC. So the question is, what happens to them? Does money matter? Yeah. So it's a, not money in the schools, but money in the household. Does money matter? And does money matter in the short run? Does it accumulate? Uh, and so stay tuned for more evidence on that. Uh, but it builds on some work that some other scholars have done that shows that indeed sort of year-on-year test scores improve when families have access to more income and moms work uh, increasing through the earned income tax credit. I just want to talk about, I think, what is probably the greatest uh, accomplishment maybe of the 20th century domestically, which was Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation of schools. And we did that because in the end that was constitutionally the right thing to do and morally it was clearly the right thing to do. But some of your research, Professor Johnson, shows that it was not only the right thing to do, again, it was maybe a very good thing to do. Can you say a little bit about that research as well? Well, I think Brown had the promise of ensuring equality of educational opportunity. And I think that the lens in that era was certainly a racial and ethnic divide, and this was going to be one of the steps toward healing that divide. I think what makes that work have salience for thinking about contemporary education policy as well is that some of those divides along class lines and race lines are kind of mixing in a, in a powerful way in which our schools today are often as segregated as they were in 1970, 1973. Mm. So we reach peak levels of integration in the U.S. in like 1988. And I would say while Brown is 1954, the actual rollout and implementation of school desegregation in our schools didn't really happen for many, in many areas till the mid to, to sometimes even late 70s. So the timing was very idiosyncratic depending on a bunch of very kind of random sets of things. The NAACP pursued a legal strategy with in mind the science of uh, legal precedence to pursue cases where they had the greatest chance to win. Okay? And what happened was a set of legal scholars after commemorating the 50th anniversary of Brown. This is another example, though, of a policy in which, during the time period in which most of this was going on, we had very limited data in monitoring and evaluating whether this set of things were working, ways in which whether resources were really being redistributed equitably. There wasn't actually a lot of data in the time period it was actually occurring to inform local school communities about the effectiveness. I was able to recover some archival and historical semblance of data um, from that time period and link it with uh, an entire case inventory of every known school desegregation case and its timing, the type of school desegregation implementation that was put in place, coupled with the school uh, spending and finance of those districts before and after desegregation. And I found that desegregation court orders led to a significant narrowing in school spending between previously all black and predominantly all white schools that led to a significant, um, most of the time folk people focus on the integration, the kind of racial aspects of school desegregation. But there was also a very important resource equalization that resulted 
from that implementation. And I find that those had substantial, and I would say probably the predominant and dom one of the dominant factors in the narrowing of black-white um, achievement gaps in that period was brought through the coupling of hospital desegregation mm -hmm. and school desegregation mm. in concert that had huge impacts in improving the well-being of African Americans. But what's important is usually these things are cast in zero-sum terms. Right. Okay? But we found no evidence that the gains for blacks came at the expense of white students. There, there so was contrary no to the claims of some of the white racists at that time that this would be the destruction of the white race and a terrible thing for white Americans, turns out they were not hurt, maybe even helped, but most surely African Americans were helped enormously in terms of better health outcomes, better employment outcomes, better educational outcomes. And so this was not only the right thing morally to do, but it was a good thing in terms of the outcomes for everybody and for the society as a whole. Yes, and I think really diversity is our gem as Americans. I think our schools don't fully access the treasure that can be brought through diversity. And I think we're becoming more diverse, but our schools aren't reflecting that mosaic and that potential. And I think that we need to kind of reinvigorate the mission of a public school system that puts diversity as one of the key components of what um, a healthy system looks like. It's interesting because we talk about that in the workplace. We talk about that as being one of the engines of what makes innovation in our society so important, but we rarely talk about that within the context of, of schooling settings. So I think this conversation really shows us how much we maybe should rethink what a lot of these poverty programs are about. They're not only just providing alms to the poor. They're also about investing in poor people, especially children, right? and giving them a chance at the American dream and making sure that our society is really a just society and also an efficient society and a society that really makes sure that it has the maximum productivity and effectiveness as a society. And I think the challenge for us is to rise to the urgency that we place a priority on tackling these achievement gaps um, and kind of commitment to excellence for all children the way that we do our own. I think that we need to kind of embrace the idea that we want to invest in all our children's capacity for excellence and that we don't want to have that just reserved for the affluent, the middle class, or the well-off, but it's something that we should kind of realize is an urgent um, sound the alarm to, to make a recommitment toward. And your research shows we actually do have some of the tools in some of the public finance, uh, the finance reforms for, higher, uh, for K through 12 education, mm -hmm. in food stamps, in the EITC, and other programs to actually help make these people who are poor better off, that we can really, really, really do that. In fact, some of these arguments even extend to public health insurance, which seems sort of even further uh, from the investment model. But some other work by other scholars um, shows that more access to Medicaid, 
again for children uh, yields improvements in very critically um, human capital outcomes. So higher rates of going to college, higher earnings, uh, through having access to health insurance in childhood. So providing these programs is one of the challenges confronting us. Can you say a little bit, Professor Hoynes, about we've just been through the 2008 Great Recession, and the safety net was tried uh, because, in fact, there were so many people who fell into poverty or unemployed and so forth. How well do you think it performed, and what do you think we need to think about changing in the system we currently have? Right. Well, it's something I've been giving a lot of thought about and uh, thought too. And in fact, I call it uh, the stress test on the safety net in the same way that we talked about the stress test of the banks, for example, and the bailout. And I think starting with the positive, um, the food stamp program, or what's called today SNAP, a supplemental nutrition assistance program, did exactly what it was designed to do. It's an entitlement. What does that mean? It means that the funds that are extended to this program are not limited. They're not block granted. They're not constrained. And so what that means is when need goes up, when demand for this assistance goes up, as you would, of course, see in the dramatic job loss that we saw in the Great Recession, you see that food stamps, caseloads, and dollars coming into families and individuals increased substantially. And so this is the showing what an automatic stabilizer can be. Uh, it responds quickly, it's targeted, it, it uh, reaches the needy. And so the, the good news uh, of our understanding from the Great Recession is how well food stamps performed in that capacity. Um, the bad news uh, is that extreme poverty, so that's defined as having income below 50%. Uh, What's of, that in dollar terms for maybe a So if you family? are, say, a single mother with two children, extreme poverty would be, say, about $8,000 a year, uh, maybe a or bit less. more. Yes, yes, so exactly. That, which is not much money. Which is not much. So what we saw in the Great Recession, the basic data fact, is that extreme poverty went up by more than we would have expected given prior kinds of relationships between extreme poverty and uh, changes in unemployment. And if you unpack that, what you see is that the main automatic stabilizer that wasn't performing in the Great Recession was cash welfare, what used to be AFDC and what post-welfare reform is TANF. And so the basic uh, fact is that a much, much smaller share of families with income below poverty or extreme poverty get cash assistance than did before welfare reform. And the res- so they were getting food stamps. They're getting food stamps. But they weren't getting EITC because there were no jobs for them exactly. to get. So there was no way they could and utilize the EITC. And in-work safety net is not very helpful right. if okay. there's not work. Right. So it can't be everything. Right. Uh, and what we're lacking, really, is an out-of-work safety net. Uh, that essentially was dismantled what about with welfare insurance? reform. So unemployment insurance is critical out-of-work uh, social insurance program. But the challenge is that, one, in order to be eligible for unemployment insurance, you need to have uh, satisfy having uh, earnings for enough quarters in order to become eligible. And the reality is that a lot of, uh, of the lower-income individuals 
are cycling over jobs too quickly to gain eligibility for unemployment. There's one sector, the agricultural sector, which is not covered. Absolutely. So people who work out on the fields picking crops are not covered by unemployment insurance when, in fact, they're in one of the most seasonal industries because crops are only ready to be picked at certain times of year. Absolutely. So the net result of all of that is that our safety net performed pretty well for, say, people at about 100% of poverty or 150% of poverty. Incomes went down, but the safety net really kicked in. But what we saw at the, for the most disadvantaged is much more marginalization in the Great Recession. Where are we in poverty policy? And should we be thinking of it a little more as investment policy? Would that be a better way to look at it? Let me start with you, Professor well, Johnson. Well, I, I think I, I like this quote that prevention is the most powerful cure. Mm-hmm. And if you think about prevention as the most powerful cure, you, you, you have to have an investment approach mm-hmm. to, to deal with that. And so I think one of the things about what I like about the Goldman School and being a, on the faculty here is that um, it appeals to my sense that to really tackle these issues, you have to have an integrative approach that kind of recognizes the interconnections and synergies between education investments, health investments, greater access to health care, income support policy, income security policy, as we've mentioned, and even crime prevention. And when you put those pieces together, instead of thinking about each of those as like individual independent policy impacts, to have a vision about the collective impacts of them taken together when they're strategically implemented over the life course. So what I'm talking about is you've heard Hillary's work on improving infant health, improving birth outcomes. Well, there's like intergenerational benefits of those investments. And then you talk about early child education. And then we talk about connecting that with K through 12. So in other words, we have to have a stream that recognizes the connectivity between the early investments with the later investments and the interaction between the two, but not just in one sphere. And the more we kind of just try to do these individual, temporary, short-term fixes that don't have the vision for how the education, health, income support policy, crime prevention work together, and as long as we then stick with just test scores and what's easily measurable as our outcome of success, I think then we're going to miss big opportunities to produce the kind of not just transformative research, but the type that ends up changing practice and leads to best policy. By your comment, it sounds like we have some tools now where we could actually help solve at least some of the problems of inequality by investing in people and therefore having better outcomes in the long run. That may not be the entire answer. Tax policy is obviously right. another Many big pieces. area where right. we've got to think about what we're doing. Right. Uh, but certainly this is one of the areas. So final no comments doubt. by either one of you on that, on inequality? And well, well, I think you know, if we unpack inequality, there's, there's what's happening at the bottom of the distribution and what's happening at the top of the distribution. And that's what comes together to form our measures of inequality. So I think much of our conversation today has been about policies that influence things uh, in, in the bottom half of the income distribution. The bottom half is important. This is not the bottom 10%. This Absolutely is not. The bottom, bottom half. half and maybe even up Yes, Right. That. I mean, 40% yes. of taxpayers receive the earned income tax credit. Mm-hmm. It's not okay. a small number. 
why is that? Because there's an enormous amount of individuals who have income below $40,000 a year, which is essentially the cutoff. So we do have a very unequal society. And what we've really been talking a lot about are what programs have sort of proven investments, particularly for increasing opportunities for individuals who are, as, as children, as you mentioned, who by no fault of their own have been born into an uneven playing field. Somehow that needs to be paid for, uh, to come back to your point about, is it only about money? Well, money helps. So obviously that needs, the resources need to be there in order to uh, engage in these policies that we've been talking about. And so that sort of feeds into uh, the other side of inequality, uh, and that is the gains in income at the top. So perhaps another day we could have a conversation about, about inequality at the top. Inequality yeah. at the top. Yeah. So Rucker Johnson. I final think the comment. last thing I would just say is that this increased economic segregation is been driven among families with children, and the reason it's been driven among families with children is because education is one of the key things that is leading to more sorting. But what it's causing is children to go to school with less diverse students. And that's definitely something that we have to recognize, that the tools of schools are insufficient to tackle those issues. That requires a coupling of the housing policy with the school piece. So we haven't talked about housing, we're not going to, but the point is the way forward has to think about how to cultivate more mixed-income neighborhoods so that the, uh, the ability of schools to have more, you know, uh, real equitable mm. curricula, teacher quality, uh, resources, spending, that really can't be done if we continue to think that segregation is... So there's hope, but there's also a lot of problems ahead and real challenges that we're going to have to meet. So thank you so much, Professor Hillary Hoynes, Professor Rucker Johnson. Thank you. Fabulous conversation. Thank you, Dean Brady. Thank you, Dean Brady.